This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 1 Specification of Purpose and Position Quote, Over against the autonomous ethical philosophies of men, where good and evil are defined by sinful speculation, the Christian ethic gains its character and direction from the revealed word of God. End quote. Throughout the history of the Christian church, believers have asked what their attitude should be toward the commandments of God that are revealed in the Old Testament. A large variety of positions have been taken regarding God's law, stretching all the way from saying that there have been no changes in how the law should be observed, so that, for instance, animal sacrifices would be continued, to saying that everything has been changed because of the change of dispensation, so that the Christian ethic is totally restricted to the New Testament. Between the two extreme poles, numerous other positions or attitudes, some pronomian, some antinomian, can be found, with subtle variations distinguishing one school of thought from another in many cases. Against the background of this welter of opinions, it would be well to specify and summarize the position regarding God's law, which is taken in these chapters. The Basic Thesis Fundamental to the position taken herein is the conviction that God's special revelation, His written word, is necessary as the objective standard of morality for God's people. Over against the autonomous ethical philosophies of men, where good and evil are defined by sinful speculation, the Christian ethic gains its character and direction from the revealed word of God, a revelation which harmonizes with the general revelation made of God's standards through the created order in man's conscience. When we explore what the Bible teaches about this character of God, the salvation accomplished by Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in making us holy in heart and conduct, or the nature of God's covenantal dealings with men, we see why the believer should take a positive attitude toward the commandments of God, even as revealed in the Old Testament. Indeed, the Bible teaches that we should be presume con- continuity between the ethical standards of the New Testament and those of the Old, rather than abbreviating the validity of God's law according to some preconceived and artificial limit. Because he did not come to abrogate the Old Testament, and because not one stroke of the law will become invalid until the end of the world, Jesus declared, Therefore, whoever breaks one of these least commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew five seventeen through 19 Given this instruction, our attitude must be that all Old Testament laws are presently our obligation unless further revelation from the lawgiver shows that some change has been made. The methodological point, then, is that we presume our obligation to obey any Old Testament commandment unless the New Testament indicates otherwise. We must assume continuity with the Old Testament rather than discontinuity. This is not to say that there are no changes from the Old to New Testament. Indeed, there are important ones. However, the Word of God must be the standard which defines precisely what those changes are for us. We cannot take it upon ourselves to assume such changes or read into them read them into the New Testament.
God's word, his direction to us, must be taken as continuing in its authority until God himself reveals otherwise. This is, in a sense, the heart of covenant theology over against a dispensational understanding of the relation between Old and New Testaments. To this methodological point, we can add the substantive conclusion that the New Testament does not teach any radical change in God's law regarding the standards of socio-political morality. God's law, as it touches upon the duty of civil magistrates, has not been altered in any systematic or fundamental way in the New Testament. Consequently, instead of taking a basically antagonistic view of the Old Testament commandments for society and the state, and instead of taking a smorgasbord approach of picking and choosing among those laws on a basis of personal taste and convenience, we must recognize the continuing obligation of civil magistrates to obey and enforce the relevant laws of the Old Testament, including the penal sanctions specified by the just judge of all the earth. As with the rest of God's law, we must presume continuity of binding authority regarding the socio-political commandments revealed as standing law in the Old Testament. Discontinuity, change, has not been denied. What has been said above is simply that the presumption should be that an Old Testament law is binding in the New Testament. This does not in any way preclude or reject many radical differences between the Old and New Testaments. Changes do indeed come through the course of redemptive history, so that there certainly are exceptions to the general continuity that characterizes the relation between Old and New Covenants. God has the right to make alterations for the New Age. In the transition to this New Age, we observe that advances are made over the Old Covenant, with some laws laid aside and some laws observed in a new fashion. Given the progress of Revelation, we must be committed to the rule that the New Testament should interpret the Old Testament for us. The attitude of Jesus and the Apostles to the Mosaic Law, for instance, must be determinative of Christian ethic. Thus, a simplistic equation between the Old and New Testament ethics, one that abstractly absolutizes the New Testament teaching about continuity with the Old Testament, not recognizing qualifications revealed elsewhere, is not advanced by the position taken here. What is maintained is that our obligation to God's Old Testament law should be interpreted and qualified by the New Testament scripture, not by relative human opinion which can cite no biblical warrant for departing from God's stipulations. It should be recognized that certain aspects of the Old Covenant are not authoritative today. For instance, in addition to the standing laws by which the Jews were always to live, God gave certain localized imperatives to them, commands for specified use in one concrete situation, not principles with the continuing force of law from generation to generation. An example would be the command to go to war and gain the land of Palestine by the sword. This is not an enduring requirement for us today. Likewise, there were cultural details mentioned in many of God's laws, so as to illustrate the moral principle which he required. For example, the distinction between accidental manslaughter and malicious murder was illustrated in terms of a flying axe head. What is of permanent moral authority is the principle illustrated and not the cultural detail used to illustrate it. Thus, we ought not to read the case laws of the Old Testament as binding us to the literal word wording utilized, for example, flying sickle blades and faulty car brakes are also covered by the law dealing with the flying axe head. In addition to localized imperatives and cultural details of expression, we would note that certain administrative details of Old Testament society are not normative for today. For example, the type or form of government, the method of tax collecting, the location of the capital. 
These aspects of Old Testament life were not prescribed by standing law, and they do not bind us today. Other discontinuities with Old Testament life and practices would pertain to the typological foreshadows in the Old Testament, replaced according to the New Testament with the realities they typified. For instance, we have the ceremonial laws of sacrifice which served during the Old Testament as weak and beggarly shadows of the perfect sacrifice of Christ which was to come. We can also think here of the provisions regarding the land of Palestine. With the coming and establishment of that kingdom typified by the promised land, and with the removal of special kingdom privileges from the Jews by Christ, the laws regulating aspects of the land of Canaan, for example, family plots, location of cities of refuge, the liberate institution, have been laid aside in the New Testament as inapplicable. Other examples could perhaps be given, but enough has been said by now to demonstrate the point that the position taken herein is not that every last detail of Old Testament life must be reproduced today as morally obligatory, but simply that our presumption must be that of continuity with the standing laws of the Old Testament, when properly contextually interpreted. We need to be sensitive to the fact that interpreting the Old Testament law, properly categorizing its details, for example ceremonial, standing, cultural, and making modern-day applications of the authoritative standards of the Old Testament is not an easy or simple task. It is not always readily apparent to us to know how to understand an Old Testament commandment or use it properly today. So the position taken here does not make everything in Christian ethics a simple matter of looking up obvious answers in a codebook. Much hard thinking, exegetical and theological homework, is entailed by a commitment to the position advocated in these studies. What is not being attempted or advocated? The aim of these studies is to set forth a case in favor of the continuing validity of the Old Testament law, including its socio-political standards of justice. It is advocated that we should presume the abiding authority of any Old Testament commandment until and unless the New Testament reveals otherwise, and this presumption holds just as much for laws pertaining to the state as for laws pertaining to the individual. As already noted, such a presumption does not deny the reality of some discontinuities with the Old Testament today. It simply insists that such changes be warranted by biblical teaching, not by untrustworthy personal feeling or opinion. So then, the position taken here does not pretend to be a total view of Christian ethics, touching on its many facets. Only one perspective in Christian ethics is taken up, namely the normative perspective dealing with the question of standards for conduct motivational and consequential perspectives, touching on inner character and goal in ethics, are not equally treated, nor is the vital area of producing and maintaining moral behavior. Moreover, the one aspect of ethics which is the focus of attention in these studies, the question of law, is presented with a view toward avoiding certain serious errors that can be made about God's law. Obedience to God's law is not the way a person gains justification in the eyes of God, Salvation is not by meritorious works, but rather by grace through faith. And while the law may be a pattern of holy living for sanctification, the law is not the dynamic power which enables obedience on the part of God's people. Rather, the Holy Spirit gives us new life and strength to keep God's commandments. The externalistic interpretation of God's law, which characterized the Pharisees, is also repudiated herein. The demands made by God extend to our hearts and attitudes so that true obedience must stem from a heart of faith and love. It is not found simply in outward conformity to part of his law. 
What these studies present is a position in Christian normative ethics. They do not logically commit those who agree with them to any particular school of eschatological interpretation. Premillennialists, amillennialists, and postmillennialists can all harmonize this normative perspective with their views of history and God's kingdom. While the author has definite views in eschatology, they are not the subject matter of these studies, either explicitly or implicitly. It can be added that the ethical position taught here is of a foundational character. It deals with a fundamental issue, the validity of God's law, and does not answer all questions about detailed application of God's law to our modern world. The specific interpretation of God's commandments is not taken up and discussed at length. Indeed, those who agree with the foundational conclusion of these studies, that God's law is binding today unless Scripture reveals otherwise, may very well disagree among themselves over particular matters in interpreting what God's law demands at this or that point, or that may disagree over how these demands should be followed today. These studies do not aim to settle such matters. They simply argue that God's law cannot be ignored in making decisions in Christian ethics. To say this is not to endorse every abuse that has been or is being made by believers regarding the requirements set forth in the Old Testament commandments. Furthermore, it should be observed that these studies do not advocate the imposition of God's law by force upon a society, as though that would be a way to bring in the kingdom. God's kingdom advances by means of the Great Commission, evangelism, preaching, and nurture in the word of God, and in the power of God's regenerating and sanctifying spirit. While these studies take a distinctive position regarding the law of God in the modern state, they do not focus upon a method of political change. The concern is rather with the standard of political justice. Thus, it might be well to avert misconceptions here by repudiating any thought of the church taking up the sword in society, any thought of rebellion against the powers that be, and likewise any thought of mindless submission to the status quo in one society. Our commitment must be to the transforming power of God's word, which reforms all areas of life by the truth. Ignoring the need for socio-political reform or trying to achieve it by force both contradict the church's reformational responsibilities. Errors pertaining to the socio-political use of God's law can be discarded in advance here. Not all sins are crimes, and thus the civil magistrate is not obligated to enforce the entire law of God. Rulers should enforce only those laws for which God revealed social sanctions to be imposed, not matters of private conscience or personal piety. It is obvious that not all political leaders are, in fact, seeking to guide their deliberations and actions by the revealed law of God. What these studies contend is that magistrates ought to submit to the law of God for socio-political affairs. They will answer to God ultimately for their disobedience to his standards. Of course, when magistrates do come to the decision to enforce the commandments of God in a particular area, whether because they have personally been converted or whether they simply see the wisdom and justice of those laws as unbelievers, they are obliged to do so in a proper and fair manner. The Christian does not advocate ex post facto justice, whereby offenders are punished for offenses committed prior to the civil enactment of a law prohibiting their actions. Nor does the Christian advocate the punishment of criminals who have not been convicted under the full provisions of due process in a court of law. Those who believe that God's law for society ought to be obeyed must be concerned that all of God's laws for society be obeyed, touching not only the punishment of offenders, but their just treatment and conviction as well. Finally, we must distance ourselves from the mistaken impression 
that because these studies pay attention to a particular subsection of Christian theology and ethics, they tend to portray that area of the truth as more important than other areas of biblical teaching. All discussion will of necessity narrowly consider one topic instead of another, for not everything can be discussed simultaneously. To write about the virgin birth, for instance, is not to offer a slight to the doctrine of Christ's coming again. It is merely to take up one of many important matters of Christian theology. Likewise, to set forth a position regarding the validity of God's Old Testament law and to argue that its standards of political justice bind us today so that civil magistrates ought to enforce the law's penal sanctions is to focus attention on just one aspect of the total picture of Christian theology and ethics. It is not to say that the most important emphasis in our lives and thinking should be the Old Testament law of Moses. It is not to say that political ethics is more vital than personal ethics, or that the cultural mandate is more crucial than the evangelistic mandate of the church. And it most certainly is not to contend that capital punishment is the most significant topic in Christian ethics, or even in Christian social ethics. By taking up a study of the Mosaic Law and the validity of its penal sanctions, we are simply pointing out that these are aspects of biblical teaching, indeed aspects which serve a beneficial purpose and as such are included in God's revealed word, and should not be misunderstood or ignored in deciding what the whole Bible has to say to us about our lives, conduct, and attitudes. By paying attention to the question of God's law and Christian ethics, we are simply being consistent with the Reformed conviction that our Christian beliefs should be guided by sola scriptura and tota scriptura, only by scripture and by all of scripture. Part 1. The Authority of God's Law A. The All-Encompassing Standard of Scripture Chapter 2. God's Word is Our Norm Will your life be founded upon the sure rock of God's word or the ruinous sands of independent human opinion? Day by day, we make decisions on how to act, we form attitudes and cultivate emotions, we set goals for ourselves and try to attain them. We do these things individually, as well as in various groups. Our family, friends, church, community, occupation, state. In all these contexts, the kind of people we are the kind of goals we have, and the kind of rules we observe in decision-making are ethical matters. All human behavior and character is subject to appraisal according to moral value. Every one of our attainments, whether they be aims that are fulfilled or character traits that are developed, and every one of our actions, whether they be mental, verbal, or bodily behavior, expresses an unspoken code of right and wrong. All life is ethical. But there are many moral values which are recommended to us. There are numerous implicit codes of right and wrong. We go through every day in the midst of a plurality of ethical viewpoints which are in constant competition with each other. Some people make pleasure their highest value while others put a premium on health. There are those who say we should watch out for ourselves first of all, and yet others tell us that we should live to be of service to our neighbor. What we hear in advertisements often conflicts with the values endorsed in our church. Sometimes the decisions of our employers violate laws established by the state. Our friends do not always share the code of behavior fostered in our family. Often we disagree with the actions of the state. All of life is ethical, but making ethical decisions can be confusing and difficult. 
Every one of us needs a moral compass to guide us through the maze of moral issues and disagreements that confront us every moment of our lives. To put it another way, making moral judgments requires a standard of ethics. Have you ever tried to draw a straight line without the aid of a standard to follow, such as a ruler? As good as your line may have seemed initially, when you placed a straight edge up to it, the line was obviously crooked. Or have you ever tried to determine an exact measurement of something by simple eyeball inspection? As close as you may have come by guessing, the only way to be sure and accurate was to use a proper standard of measurement, such as a yardstick. And if we're going to be able to determine what kinds of persons, actions, or attitudes are morally good, then we will need a standard here as well. Otherwise, we will lead crooked lives and make inaccurate evaluations. What should be our ethical standard? What yardstick should we use in making decisions, cultivating attitudes, or setting goals for ourselves in the groups in which we move? How does one know and test what is right and wrong? Yardsticks for Civilization In ancient Greece and Rome, the city or state was taken as the ultimate authority and yardstick in ethics. Caesar was lord over all when moral questions were raised. Over against the totalitarian, divinized state, the early church proclaimed the lordship of Jesus Christ. The ruling authorities, Romans 13 verse 1, were told that all authority in heaven and earth resided in the resurrected Messiah, Matthew 28 verse 18. Accordingly, the apostle John portrayed the political beast of Revelation 13 as requiring that his own name be written on men's foreheads and hands, verses 16 and 17 thereby symbolizing that the state's law had replaced the law of God, which was to be written on the forehead and hand. Counter-reference, chapter 6, verse 8. That is why those who stand in opposition to the beast are described as those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Revelation, chapter 14, verse 1, and verse 12. The medieval church, however, came to foster two yardsticks of ethics, a standard for religious ethics found in the revealed scriptures, and a standard for natural ethics found in man's reason as it examined the world. Of course, that left some ethical decisions or evaluations independent of the Word of God, and those religious issues which remained under the umbrella of the Bible were ultimately decided by the Pope. Thus, the medieval world was ripe for tyranny in both a secular state and despotic church. Over against this, the Reformers challenged the traditions of men and reasserted the full authority of God's Word, declaring sola scriptura, and Tota Scriptura, only Scripture and all of Scripture. The final standard of faith and practice, the yardstick for all of life, personal as well as social morality, was the Bible. That is why the Puritans strove to let God's Word form their lifestyle and regulate their behavior in every sphere of human endeavor. A holy God required them to be holy in all your conduct. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and the standard of holy living was found in God's holy law. Romans chapter 7 verse 12. Accordingly, the Puritans even took God's laws, their yardstick for civil laws, in the new land to which they eventually came, and we have enjoyed the fruits of their godly venture in this country for three centuries now. The attitude of the Reformers and Puritans is nicely summarized in Robert Paul's painting, which hangs in the Supreme Court building, Lausanne, Switzerland. It is entitled, Justice Instructing the Judges and it portrays justice pointing her sword to a book labeled The Law of God. Nevertheless, with the coming of the alleged Enlightenment, 
the yardstick of ethics progressively shifted from the law of God in the Bible to human laws fostered by independent reason and experience. A neutral or critical attitude toward the inspired scripture undermined its recognized authority over all of life, and modern ethics has come to be characterized by an autonomous spirit, an attitude of self-law. The yardstick of ethics would be found within man or his community. Bishop Butler located it in man's conscience, Kant in man's reason, and Hegel in the absolute state. The one thing shared by all schools of modern ethics is an antipathy to taking moral direction from the Bible, for to do so is viewed as outdated, ignorant, unreasonable, prejudicial, undemocratic, and impractical. Being uncomfortable and irritated by the holy requirements of God's law for every aspect of human conduct, modern men reject this shackle upon their personal liberty and desires, and they ridicule its provisions for social justice. The predictable result in Western culture is the tension between an unrestrained, tyrannical state on the one hand and the liberated, unrestrained individual on the other. Statism and anarchy pull against each other. The immoral policies of the state are matched by the immoral lives of its citizens. In earlier stages, this kind of situation was redressed by the church as it served the function of preservative salt in the earth, Matthew 5, verse 13. But today, vast numbers of theologians have thrown away the biblical yardstick of ethics and have substituted something else for it. The outcome has been the loss of any respectable, vigorous, reforming ethic in the contemporary church. Thus said the Lord has been reduced to, it seems to me, or us. Bonhoeffer said that, quote, God is teaching us that we must live as men who can get along very well without him, end quote. Not only does Frank Sinatra sing out modern man's testimony for Western culture, quote, the record shows I took the blows and did it my way, end quote, but the German theologian Wolfhart Pannenberg delivers the modern church's response, quote, the proclamation of imperatives backed by divine authority is not very persuasive today, end quote. The Bible no longer directs all of life because its requirements are deemed stifling and are viewed in advance as unreasonable. Men repudiate the interference in their lives represented by God's commandments. This attitude of lawlessness, 1 John 3, verse 4, unites all men because of their sin, Romans 3, verse 23. Even theologians today pretend to be ethical authorities in their own right who know better than the Bible what is right and wrong. In Christian Ethics and Contemporary Philosophy, Grammy de Graff says, quote, There is no room in morality for commands, whether they are the fathers, the schoolmasters, or the priests. There is still not room for them when they are God's commands, end quote. The leading advocate of situation ethics in our day, Joseph Fletcher, tersely concludes that, quote, Law ethics is still the enemy, end quote. And these lawless attitudes continue to filter down to the local level. A liberated woman writes in the Reformed Journal, 1975, quote, I thank God that as a Reformed Christian, I worship a God of grace and not of a God of rules, end quote. The Biblical Attitude By contrast, the Biblical Attitude is expressed by the Apostle John when he says, quote, The love of God is this, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, end quote. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 Believers in Jesus Christ do not wish to live as a law unto themselves, unfettered by external divine requirements. They welcome and love the biblical standard of right and wrong, no matter what it may stipulate for any aspect of life. God's holy law is not a burden to them, and they are not constantly searching for substitutes which will be more pleasing to the autonomous attitude of their age. 
They do not prefer self-law to God's law, for they recognize that it is impossible to draw straight lines and make accurate measurements in ethics without the infallible yardstick of God's word. All of life is ethical, I have said, and all ethical judgments require a dependable standard of right and wrong. Jesus said, having just declared that he will eternally reject all those who practice lawlessness, quote, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. End quote. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Will your life be founded upon the sure rock of God's word or the ruinous sands of independent human opinion? Will your ethical decisions be crooked and inaccurate, following foolish and lawless standards, or will you wisely employ the yardstick of God's revealed word? The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.